Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire. Today's podcast is sponsored by June's Journey. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game which transports you into a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance set in the glamorous 1920s. You'll play as June Parker as she embarks on a quest to solve her sister's murder. But that's not all. You'll let your imagination run wild as you get to customize your own luxurious estate island with expensive gardens and beautiful buildings. So, can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Hey, it's Rebecca. I want to extend a special thanks to those of you who've listened and who've left reviews on iTunes for this podcast. Please leave a review if you haven't. We really do appreciate it. We're producing the show independently, and that isn't free. We have to pay for studio time, software, equipment, our website, travel, and we love to be able to talk about Serial Season 2, as well as some of the other great ideas for conversations you've sent my way. If you want to support this podcast's continued life, please make a donation. There's a little donate button on our website. The address is crimewriterson.com. You can also find information there about everyone on our panel, and because a few of you have requested it, a page where you can find the Amazon links to all of our books. All of that is at crimewriterson.com. Thanks for your support, and enjoy the show. I'm Rebecca Lavoie, and you're listening to Crime Writers on Serial. This is a podcast homage podcast about the blockbuster spinoff of This American Life, reporter Sarah Koenig's 12-week look at the conviction of Adnan Syed for the 1999 murder of Hay Min Lee. I work in radio by day, but in my spare time, I'm a true crime author. And a few weeks ago, I started convening a panel of fellow crime writers to talk about Serial, the storytelling in the podcast, and the case itself. Well, we're back this week to discuss a big development that dropped like an internet bomb last week. That was The Intercept's three-part interview with Jay Wilds, a.k.a. the mysterious figure we only knew as Jay for 12 episodes of Serial. Joining me to talk about that interview and some of the reactions to it is my husband and true crime co-author, Kevin Flynn. Welcome back, Kevin. Just when I thought I was out, you pulled me back in. Also with me is true crime writer and investigator, Laura Bricker. Welcome back, Laura. Thank you. And because of the complicated nature of holiday, vacations, ice, snow, etc., we've got crime fiction author Toby Ball joining us remotely this week. Hi, Toby. Hi, everyone. So Natasha Vargas Cooper does this interview with Jay, and uh, I'd love to just hear quickly how you all reacted when you heard this interview was coming out. Laura, did you have like an OMG moment? Um, I, I think I just kind of cringed and went, oh, another version of events from Jay. Here we go. What about you, Toby? I was pretty excited to see, you know, how he would sort of frame events and, and what he kind of had to say for himself in the face of you know, quite a bit of innuendo, especially, you know, on Reddit and, and online. What about you, Kevin? I was like, who the hell is The Intercept? <laughs> no, I mean, really, it's not like Barbara Walters. <laughs> you, you know, what, and, and, you know, and if he's also, and we'll get into this, but if he's going to sort of cast aspersions on Sarah Canning for, you know, trying to manipulate him into this interview, how does this journalist score this interview? It's... um I don't know. Maybe it speaks to it was surprising to you. It was surprising. Yeah, it was surprising he came out, but it was surprising that this was this was the reporter. 
this was the outlet that landed this huge scoop. Well, to be fair, Natasha Vargas Cooper, who I know a little bit, is actually a very well-regarded reporter. She came from another outlet, and The Intercept, along the lines of another new media news organizations, is a journalism website, you know, like a Vox or like a Quartz uh, kind of site. So I think the choice of outlet was surprising to me, too. It wasn't the most surprising thing about it. What was more surprising to me was when I heard that he didn't have a lawyer with him. I guess we'll get to all of that. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. I don't, I don't mean to put down the, the, the journalist. <laughs> I just was like, that isn't, if I was Jay or if I were advising Jay, I don't know if I would have gone there. But Well, I guess it happened through his lawyer is the way that I understand that the interview came together. So, But there's information about that. You know, We'll post that on the blog so people can see how it came together there. So I think one of the first things out of the box that's interesting is um, – Jay gets to, you know, we know Jay is a character now. We've heard about, you know, sort of how he dressed, sort of his affect. He gets to sort of create his own version of Jay, and he sort of describes himself as a little bit of a bigger deal, I think, than we than we heard him described as. He says, it wasn't like I was selling a nickel bag here and there. He said he ran a drug operation out of his grandmother's house. Laura, I'm curious, what do you think of this um, new character of Jay that Jay is creating for us? Well, it actually makes the most sense to me out of all of the characters that Jay has put forward in his different versions of events. I'd always felt like drugs played a bigger role in this case and that that was somehow, you know, why these people were using their cell phone all day long. And so this did make the most sense to me that he was worried about going to jail for drugs. At that time, there were much stiffer penalties, and that did make sense to me. The other thing that you that you said to me was that you felt like this interview felt less like journalism and more kind of like fan fiction? Like, what did, what did you mean by that? Yeah, well, I think what it was is, um, you know, in terms of the nature of people reading this and the interest in this, um, it's not so much the way that people would follow a journalistic story. It's people that are fans of serial now following journalism. So I think you've got a different readership than you would have had for a traditional true crime story. Yeah, and I think that there's been a different true crime audience for this true crime story, which I think plays into some of the controversies that I know we're going to be talking about. Um, Toby, you said something really interesting to me uh, via Facebook instant message when we were talking about this podcast. You talked about how this isn't the first time Sarah Koenig has hasn't been in charge of the narrative, but it sort of plays out differently this time. Can you tell me what you meant about that? You know, I guess it works on, on two different levels for me. One is is that everything, unless you've been, you know, on the internet and, and reading stuff there, but most of the stuff that you've heard has really been through Sarah's lens. And she even references in one of the uh, emails that's in this article that she has a lot of other stuff that she chose not to put out there because she didn't think it was fair or it wasn't uh, you know, adding to the story. And I think she's probably been doing it in a very sort of judicious and fair way, but she has been making all these decisions about what you hear and what you know and how it's presented. And then for the first time, you know, this this is kind of out of her hands. And in fact, it's out of her hands with Jay, who, you know, is one of the two sort of main people in the story. And she hasn't been able to talk to him other than by having tapes from 15 years ago. And so this is really his opportunity to tell his story. And I was sort of struck by the fact that he doesn't do it really by answering serial necessarily, sort of point by point. Like he just sort of tells his own story to the point where, you know, in addition to inconsistencies and things like that, it seems like there are sort of unanswered questions that you might have had while you were listening to the podcast that you would assume that Jay would address, which he just doesn't. 
which I, I think is probably because he, he actually has not listened to it, or at least, you know, uh, not very much. Right. I mean, the form of it was interesting, Kevin, because we're used to this um, this story so far. We've been led through it. You know, Sarah will play a tape of people and then she'll like sort of frame the tape. She'll say, you know, if it were Jay, she would say, this is Jay talking about X. And then he would say that. And then you would hear sort of an explainer like, you know, we checked on that and that was true. And that that, that wasn't the case here. So what do you think about that break in form? Well, yeah, this in this case, it was just purely a transcript of an interview. And so there was no other context or... Um, there is some transparency, which is good. You also kind of get to see how much or how little the journalist pushed back on what he was saying. There's a couple times where, you know, she said, okay, let's go back. And there's a couple of times where they made an editorial ins- insertion about a, you know, a, a correction or a clarification. But for the most part, it just sort of played out exactly as this is how we sat down and what we said so that you know, maybe his words aren't twisted. You know, what we don't know um, is whether or not this was sort of what was a preset rule with Jay's lawyer. Like, this is the only format of an interview will do. Right. Because, you know, if you are going to talk to somebody, why not Sarah Koenig? Uh, right, right. Well, he has this inherent mistrust of her, which we'll talk about when we get into their correspondence. Okay, so let's talk about what the format does, I think, to his second like disservice, in a way, to his part of the story, is that this opportunity to just let him talk and not push back gives him a lot of opportunity to tell a different version of the story, which brings up more inconsistency. So I have a list of what some of those are here, but I'd love to hear from each of you. Toby, was there anything about Jay's new version of events that stuck out for you as sort of like the the prime inconsistency? You know, I, I guess I didn't focus quite as much on that as the way he sort of set the scene in which all this occurred, like the, the issues at Woodlawn High School, where there was suddenly uh, this magnet school, and that it split people a little bit, and that Adnan was definitely uh, as part of uh, of that scene, and that he was part of the non magnet scene as well as well as Hay. You know, beyond that, I'll be interested to hear what other people say. You know, I think fifteen years in retrospect, and then I thought he did a pretty interesting, you know, sort of excuse for his changing stories, which is you know protecting his his grandmother, whose house apparently you know held a lot of pot that that Jay was growing at the time. I, I thought the Woodlawn sort of class differential thing was really kind of out of left field, too. I mean, we it just hadn't come up before. And we've heard we've heard from people who are both in the Magnet program and out of the Magnet program, and you never really got a sense. And you get the sense that the Magnet kids were close, but, you know, this narrative that it's it somehow was setting the scene for, like, for turmoil, that was that was brand new, right? Am I wrong about that? Yeah, well, yeah, I guess. I mean, you know, there was discussion about what the school was and how they were – you know, there were sort of a smaller group of kids that were set aside. To me, as I, you know, I'm just reading again this transcript of this interview. I think it's the question is very open ended. What was your opinion of Adnan? And it was, you know, kind of all about this. And if it hadn't been a transcript, if if it had been sort of we're going to write this article, I think a lot of that probably wouldn't have been included. I right. don't think it was particularly enlightening. I think the other stuff really. Who cares what Jay thought of Adnan in, in high school? You know, get to that night in January, and let's go over that. Okay, so let's talk about that night again. So primary inconsistencies. What stuck out for you, Laura? Because I know that you are, 
really have a lot of consternation about Jay's inconsistencies for this entire series. I have to tell you, I honestly, this is going to sound awful, I just couldn't even focus on them. I was so irritated by this interview. I just felt like... He was trying to spin it, and why come forward now? Um, I was—I guess I was just struck by how little he claimed to have actually hung around with Adnan before this day. That was something that I don't think I really—I knew they kind of hung out occasionally, but he made it sound like they had only been around each other a few times. Right, right. What about you, Kevin? Um, I mean, there were a couple of things that did jump out at me about— you know what he had to say about that night, and you know one of them is you know he he said that, and I know you're going to go through the timeline, but he said that he he did respond to Adnan's call at Best Buy, um, but he said there was no car there, and that he definitely when he saw his body, it wasn't at Best Buy like he testified. It was at his grandmother's house, and quote, it didn't happen anywhere other than my grandmother's house. And that's a big deal, you know. I mean, you could go as far as to say that he perjured himself on the stand. And, you know, the, the, another big inconsistency, I thought, was the fact that he said that he asked Adnan for the car. Right. That was a big one. That morning. And that, you know, again, so that he could go to the mall and get a, a birthday present for Stephanie. Right. Who we still haven't heard from. And that would be a really Although great Although we heard get. about her a little bit in this interview, which was very interesting. We did. You know, and the last big one for me, the biggest thing for me is, again, the only fact that is in concrete that we know that we all can agree on is that Jay knew where Hayes' car was. Right. And so, you know, there's this thing about there's two cars and there's two people and Jay's kind of like hands off on moving some of the cars, which, you know, is kind of odd. And that, you know, apparently uh, after going and hanging out smoking pot at, at Kathy, not Kathy's house, Adon drops Jay off at his grandmother's house. And then disappears for a while, Adnan does. And then he returns to Jay's house with Hayes' car. That's where he shows him Hayes' body. He calls first. And he, I, he calls I, first, I'm curious yeah. to know whether or not that call is on the call log. Is there a call to Jay's grandmother's house from Adnan's cell phone on this call log? I have, you know, I don't have the call log in front of me. I'm sure that would be easy to check. But that seems like a pretty glaring phone call that perhaps you would have heard about. So go ahead. Yeah, well, he leaves. Apparently, he says he leaves, Adnan leaves, and then returns at midnight so that means, question mark, he left Hayes' car at Jay's house? Because Jay says Adnan left in his car. And then, you know, they drive around and, and go to Lincoln Park, and now Hayes' car is in a, quote, strange neighborhood near Lincoln Park. How does that car get there? And or if you say Adnan drove it way out to Lincoln Park, how does he get back? To his own car. To his own car. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's definitely a lot going on there with cars. It's sort of like the, the magic bullet in the JFK. It's like the yeah. magic the magic driver. Um, so a couple of the other inconsistencies. Uh, Jay now says in his newest version that he went to the mall alone in his newest version of events. Uh, he suggests going to the mall saying, can I take your car? Which was, I think, part of the state's big part of their premeditation case was that the plan was... Jay would take Adnan's car so that he can then ask Hay for a ride. And now Jay is saying he wanted the car. Uh, he says that he went to the mall alone. He says that uh, the premeditation did happen like a week before and a conversation he doesn't really remember. But then he talks about uh, the Best Buy thing, and she doesn't ask him about the phone, which I was like, ask him about the phone, whether or not there was a phone there, that the trunk popped, tapped in a different place. And then he talks about Kathy's. And one of the things that was interesting about Kathy's is that he says Jen was there. He, he names people who were there. And I thought Jen wasn't there, which was why it was weird 
that Adnan and Jay showed up when, when she wasn't home. I mean, I thought that was one of Kathy's big memory details was like, I know Jen wasn't there because I thought it was weird that her friends were here. Uh, so, Toby, now, now that you sort of like have heard some of the rundown of just some of the inconsistencies, any of those for you sort of like stand out in terms of, you know, Jay said that? Well, I guess a couple of things. One is 15 years later, trying to remember details of who was at a certain place or certain time things. And I think at one point he says, you know, this is 15 years ago. So as I was listening to this stuff and and how it just really a lot of it just didn't jive at all with some things that seemed fairly important in the podcast. You know, I, I was just trying to think about times, you know, something sort of intense and important has happened to me. And it seems like things kind of go by in a blur sometimes when you look back at it. And that's not even with like smoking pot every step of the way. And so it, it, I guess it didn't surprise me too much that this far on, if he hasn't been listening to the podcast and hasn't been trying to sort of calibrate what he's talking about to sort of respond to the podcast, that some of what he would, would be saying would be inconsistent with what we've heard so far. I, I guess I've got a slightly different sort of attitude towards it in that I, I don't necessarily think he's being disingenuous as much as just, just not remembering clearly and not being as sort of focused on the narrative as put forth in Serial as, as everybody else has been. Well, let's talk about a big part of the narrative. Uh, one of the things he says at trial was that they both buried Hay's body. And in this interview, he says he absolutely had nothing to do. I mean, that that's not as, I don't think, as minor as the time things happened. Laura, you're shaking your head. What's... Yeah, I guess, well, what I'm thinking is, you know, now we have, I think, like three or four different timelines of events that Jay has put forward. And that's obviously a pretty big change that he didn't take part in actually burying Hay. And I'm thinking... What's going to happen when and if they get Jay back on a witness stand in this case, if some of these appeal issues actually uh, result in him being recalled? You know, the defense attorney, the new one, is going to have a hopefully field day with this. You know, these four different versions of events, which, you know, shed some sort of credibility issues on Jay that really were not brought out the first time around as much as they could have been. And I have no faith in the timeline at all anymore. Anybody's version of it. I mean, you're not, you know, 15 years late, even at the time, you're not looking at your watch. You're going by, it was dark. It was seemed late. I, I, you know, they can't even, you know, really pin down the 27 minutes, you know, where hey supposedly died. I mean, that's just sort of all over the place. So people's timelines, I don't know. I mean, the closest thing we really have as far as anything are the the phone calls and the cell tower pings. And that's really the only thing we can sort of put our hat on as far as when stuff actually happened. The one thing, and this is, you know, kind of what Toby was saying, we've always sort of suspected that Jay was hiding something or was there was a reason why he wasn't being forthcoming and his narrative now that he was doing it to protect his grandmother makes sense in that way it it does seem to be a um you know an excuse that you know would be reasonable for and fit in with his actions you know if he got caught you know, especially if his grandmother was in some sort of subsidized housing you know she would lose her home you know this could be a reason for why at the time with police his statements would change. Don't know what that means as far as, you know, 2015. I, I was going back through some of the podcasts and uh, Jim Trainum, the uh, detective consultant, like his take on Jay was that he was lying and he, he put out three possibilities about why he was lying. Uh, one was to protect himself, one was to protect someone else, and one was that he had assisted Adnan and, and that he was trying to, uh, you know, get out from under that. You know, Jay is, Jay is 
pretty clearly sort of indicating that the reason why he was lying was to protect someone else. So if nothing else, it seemed that, that Trainum's sort of intuition was, was pretty good. Now, your question, Rebecca, about, you know, burying the body, that is something you do not forget. You, you know, he's saying he, he testified that he helped bury the body. Now he's saying, you know, that is not a uh, 15 years later, I remembered it differently. You do not forget that action, no matter who you are. Well, what's interesting is the narrative protecting people. It doesn't protect anybody for him to have said that he did it at the time and then not except. And this is something that occurred to me. And I actually have somebody that I want to sort of give some credit to because it sort of made me think about this more. You know, in this interview, Jay's talking about protecting his grandmother. He talks about protecting his wife. He talks about protecting the little kids that are hanging around his house. He sort of has this moral code of I'm going to do this very, I think, what he believes to be a highly developed sense of morality and sort of the protecting people narrative coming up over and over and over again. Uh, on Reddit, which I know has been, you know, of course, vilified in the Jay interview. And, you know, there are, there are a lot of things on Reddit that are not smart and there are a lot of things on Reddit that are smart. Uh, somebody made a post, a uh, user with the name, embarrassing to say, but it is their name, I am Cornholio, about the moral universe of Jay and what uh, he or she wrote was that in Natasha Vargas Cooper's interview, what stands out more than anything is how Jay presents himself as the moral protector of other people's honor, particularly the honor of various women, children, the elderly, kin, and other, quote, innocents. It is a somehow warped, perhaps sexist sense of honor that services repeatedly. It calls to mind the culture of honor that many sociologists locate in the rural parts of the South amongst young urban men. And then uh, he goes on to list some of the things that he talks about, about sort of the honor, protecting Hayes' family, uh, protecting people at Kathy's house until it was time to involve them. He didn't want to involve them. He states that he wants to clear his name. He, he wants to shield Stephanie. He, he references the power of the no snitching code. And the problem, this user says, is that Jay's sense of honor seems misapplied or applied inconsistently. It's what you'd expect from a stone teenager or someone who's not thinking clearly. It is it's the code you see when you, t- you you hear about, and I don't want to, I know that Jay isn't in a gang, I don't want to imply that he is, but you sort of hear that code when you hear about people in gangs. You hear that code when you hear about bikers. It's sort of like It's the code of the street. It, well, yeah. it's a code of something. Drug dealers. Well, that's... I, I really think that drugs, I go back to this, that drugs were a bigger part of this case and that perhaps he was also protecting somebody higher up in the chain so in the drug world. That, that's your theory right now? That's my theory right now. That's very interesting. Yes. All right, we'll have to talk about that at the end when we talk about our you know, new speculation on the case. I know we have a lot that we want to say about that. We should talk more about the legal mind that is I am Cornholio. <laughs> hey, I am Cornholio. Ethelie Bailey and Cornholio happen to say. <laughs> okay. So let's move on to uh, part two of the interview, which released, you know, Kevin actually had the interesting idea that it would have been smart for The Intercept to release this interview one week apart rather than, you know, days apart so that it would have felt more, maybe built up a little bit more audience. I'm not 100 percent sure you're wrong about that, I don't think. Uh, One of the things that happens in part two is that we see Sarah Koenig trying to get Jay to talk to her. There's an email in there that's excerpted, which is the email that she wrote to Jay when she I guess right after they had gone to his house and then there was this long email of her saying, I understand why you didn't want to talk. And there's a lot in there in terms of what you see of the reporter's work. Now, Toby, I'm going to ask you this first only because I know you've never written an email like this. How did reading that email sit with you? Like, how, how did it sit with you, what she said in it, sort of the way she went about saying it and all that? Uh, well, I think it, it it sounds remarkably like her when she's talking. You know, she's, I think, very respectful you know, understanding, you know, at the same time, she's trying to, you know, she's trying to get him 
to talk to her rather than somebody else or, or not at all. Again, I think it's, for me, it really, it comes down to what, you know, what she's trying to accomplish and what he could hope for happening if he cooperated with her. You know, he says he felt like he was threatened at the end about how it's in his interest to speak to her. And while I don't think that that was what she intended, I don't doubt that that's the way he felt. And no matter how she'd kind of put it, that, you know, he's basically being left with this, you can either let other people talk for you or you can talk to me and I'll put it on the air in some form. And he doesn't trust her to begin with. What do you think, Laura, when you read that email? I I agree. It does sound like Sarah, and it does sound exactly like the way she was narrating the story. And I I disagree a little bit about Jay's reaction. I felt like he completely was blowing out of proportion his alleged fear of Sarah and his feelings of being threatened. I just felt like when I read his description of how he felt during that time when Sarah went to his house and tried to speak with him, it, it didn't feel genuine to me. It felt like he was trying to portray himself as a victim in this situation, and um, it it didn't ring true. What about you, Kevin? This is an email. I know that we've talked about this a lot because it reads a lot like emails that we write. This is extremely common, whether or not you're doing a true crime book like we write, or you're writing the story for today's newspaper and you're on deadline. You have to approach people that may not necessarily want to speak to you and try to convince them to do it. The police cannot compel you to talk to them. So why can can a writer, a writer cannot, unless the writer can make the case that you would benefit from cooperating. You know, when I was in TV, it was very easy. People liked the camera and they're like, oh, and and I would like to be on TV and talk to you. But like when you're writing a book or when you're in radio or something else like that, in those instances, it's a little harder. I'm not saying you play car salesman and that you mislead people, but I think she's being very transparent, very honest and sincere. And I think this is, you know, a pulling back the curtain that people don't usually see this. You have to be able to explain, well, what is in your best interest? And she, you know, she didn't come out and say, the first thing she she says is, well, that's only for you to decide. Right. But here's why I think, and it's very similar to what we say, you know, the story is going to be better with your voice in it. And, you know, if you don't have a voice in it, you can't control what the, the, the narrative is going to eventually be. All you can control is your message. You, you're better off giving your message. That is actually, I mean, we know that that's true. And we know it's true because it, it, it bore out in this case. What she said to him specifically was, you'll feel better with the end result if you are an active voice in the story rather than someone who's being talked about. You get to do the talking. So let's look at how Adnan feels about the story, how we've heard him say he feels. I mean, he doesn't seem angry at Sarah. He doesn't seem like he mistrusts her, uh, thinks that she was trying to, you know, bamboozle him. Uh, and then look at how Jay feels about about the story and how it turned out. And the difference between the two of them is that one of them participated and one of them didn't. I will tell you, you know, Kevin, you were in TV for a long time. Laura, you were a reporter for a long time. You know, crime writing is the only kind of, you know, long-form journalism I've ever done. These emails, when I write them, I will admit they make me very uncomfortable because I know that it's true. What I'm saying is true. You benefit from participating. The story benefits. But I also know that I'm saying that because it is a tactic to get somebody to talk to you. Right, Laura? It's a strategy. Yeah, no, it is. It is a strategy. And I always, when I write those emails or when I made those phone calls, which are always very difficult to do, I, you know, and these people, they don't know me. 
they don't have a rapport with me like when I was a you know newspaper reporter on a beat and people knew me because they dealt with me every week. So you're coming at it from a much more difficult position, you know. And I always just say, you know, you can you need to trust me that I'm going to tell the story the way that you're telling it to me and that I'm not going to change it. Um, back to Jay though. The, the other thing about Jay, I found it just shocking that he was just so stunned that he became such a big part of the story here. Mm-hmm. Um, like he didn't really think that his name and his persona was going to be such a big part of the narrative and serial. He was the key part of the state's case. Right. He so, was he was the key witness is in he their case. Living in a bubble. And and you know and she asks him questions in that regard. Natasha does uh, in in this part of the interview, and she asks him specifically about his role at the trial. Um, Toby, I, I wonder th- what Natasha's email said. <laughs> You know, if Sarah's threw him off. Well, yeah, but Natasha apparently was a pro. I mean, they were apparently brokered together in yeah. some way. You know, Sarah was pursuing him in a way, and he decided to talk, and then Natasha was the. But if Jay, you know, again, was uh, intimidated in some way, what do you think his inbox looks like now from <laughs> ABC and NBC? And I- I'm not talking about, you know, yahoos who want to solve the case and right. are driving by his house, which is crazy, right, by the way. Right, which is not okay. And we got to talk about that because that, you're right. That is totally not cool. But, you know, to have Sarah go and knock on the door and she said she said this was a real dick move. That was her quote. Right. This was a dick move. It's 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 difficult, but it is a respectful, professional way of going about doing this, knocking on the door and saying, this is the only way I can get a hold of you. Right. And and thank you for inviting me in. And let's talk. I mean, I I kind of take a, a slightly I feel like I'm playing devil's advocate this entire podcast, but um, that's why we didn't invite you to the studio today. <laughs> that's right. Um, I I kind of had a different take on the whole whole Jay thing, in that I don't think that he necessarily, once the story got going, felt like he was surprised that he was a part of it. But I think in his mind, this is something that happened 15 years ago, and now suddenly, not only is it kind of back, but it's huge, and everybody's talking about it, and people are speculating about it, and speculating about it. Like, even if you feel like you had a pretty full picture by the end, you know, speculation was going on episode by episode, and he eventually was found out. And I think in his mind, or if I was in his place, I'd be thinking, man, I thought I thought this was behind me a long time ago. And the way that Sarah's a threat to him is that she's just bringing this up again. Here's what's interesting about that to me. Uh, true crime journalism is an exceedingly common thing. We have 48 hours on the case with Paul Azan, 60 Minutes, you know, 2020, uh, all sorts of fringe and mainstream shows that do this all the time. They take an old case, they say maybe the wrong person was convicted, and they sort of like just unpack it again. What is the difference here with sort of, you know, the sort of split public opinion about sort of the fairness or pain to Jay or not? Is it because this is a true crime story presented to a non-traditionally true crime consuming audience? Because I don't know about you guys, but I have seen this. I see so many stories where sort of a light is shed on somebody and you so rarely have those people then coming out and making an interview, much less talking about being being vilified. I mean, he talks about Sarah lying about what the project was. And, and I've never seen a reaction like this before. Toby, I mean, do you understand what I'm saying here? It's not like this is a new idea. Right. Well, I think part of it may be that Sarah admittedly didn't know where it was going. And, you know, even when it was over, she kind of speculates. But so instead of tying things up or having some kind of picture at the end 
of of who was involved in what way, you know, it really wasn't settled. So it's left to all these people who have been listening, you know, myself included. You know, you, you're just left with what your what your intuition or what deductions you've made. It may not be that unusual. My guess is is that the people who are in you know twenty twenty or forty eight hours or whatever. Uh, you know, probably aren't too happy about it either, but they aren't quite the, the uh, you know, online presence that Serial has been. What do you think about that, Laura? Well, I think it is a different audience, and I think perhaps it's um, because it has been an every week episode, it has become more of an entertainment type true crime story and that people are looking forward to it every week like they're looking forward to the next season of Downton Abbey this evening. So I think it's become more of an entertainment um, type of story, even though that's not the way that Sarah's telling it. And I don't think that was her intention. I think this sort of fan base that we were talking about before has made it that because it has become so all consuming. I have two thoughts on that. And you're all right. I think the audience is different. It's mainstream. But the the audience that is watching 2020 is not necessarily the same audience that are buying true crime books. And the audience that is, you know, um, watching TV are not necessarily the ones who download podcasts. And because that is the medium that says an awful lot about you know the demographics of the audience and their exposure to this, and this is very new to a lot of the people who said, "Oh, what is this fascinating thing?" and they jump on. Um, the second thing is, I think a lot of the criticism about the way Sarah told the story and sort of the whole thing in general has been coming not so much from the audience who's on the internet; it's coming from the mainstream journalists who are now covering serial as some a story. Some of the mainstream some, journalists, yes. So who are covering serial as a story now, they are very uncomfortable with the conversational manner in which the way Sarah has presented this and the first-person journalistic narrative, which is every week on This American Life and is completely consistent with the way they, they do this. But but I think a lot of mainstream journalists are just like, we would never do it like that. It's like, well, yeah, you would never do 12 hours on a single story. And, you know, she didn't set out to do a 60 Minutes piece. This is very much in the vein of This American Life. You know, a lot of the criticism from the from from, from journalists has to do with they don't get it. Either they don't get it or they don't. I don't know. I sort of wonder this and I think about this a lot. And, in, in, you know, in our own sort of career writing true crime, there is a marginalization of the genre of true crime. And, you know, this week we heard it this morning. There was an excellent episode of On the Media, which was all about true crime and sort of in defense of true crime and the value of these stories and the fact that so much of our culture is influenced by them. But when people think about crime stories, I think they go straight to those, you know, pulpy books or, you know, the sensational Jean Benet Ramsey, you know, People magazine covers. And, there's like a little bit of like intellectual guilt around finding these stories interesting. I, I don't know. I mean, that that's kind of what seems to be that a lot of the conflict seems to be about. No, I was I totally agree. I, I have a friend who's a, a very accomplished poet, and true crime is like her guilty pleasure, and she doesn't like to admit it to people. She says, "This is my guilty pleasure," and my husband is horrified by this. I mean, we've heard this too. I, I heard this from Sherman Alexie. I heard it from Anna Quinlan yeah. at an event. Yes, love true crime. And I, I write true crime. I'm sorry. <laughs> You know, and uh, uh, Juno Diaz said the same thing. We're dropping names left and right here. But like, you know, like these very highbrow literary, critically acclaimed 
authors say, yeah, I like to re- read that for fun. Yeah. Okay. Well, anyway, moving on. Uh, So Jay did say a couple of things I just want to touch on really quick. He sort of talked about what he could do, what he would have done differently. One of the things that stuck out to me, and uh, this kind of sounds like it's uh, in your wheelhouse, Laura, in terms of what your theory is. Uh, Natasha says, what would you have done differently? And he says, it's kind of a puzzling thing. Um, I don't know if me not moving an Adnan circle of people would have saved her life, meaning Hay. Like, I don't know if I sold more weed or less weed that Hay would still be alive. You know what I'm saying? I don't know if there's anything else I could have done. Maybe I could have listened better and taken what I heard more seriously. What does that mean? Uh, well, that plays <laughs> right into my theory, Rebecca. Okay. So I, I really have felt all along that there was something more going on um, with Jay and with the drugs. And I think he was supplying drugs to a lot more people than we initially may have thought. And perhaps, you know, perhaps Adnan had some role in that. I don't know. Um, perhaps he owed somebody money. And, you know, hey was a warning to pay up or you know, Stephanie's next, because he was very concerned about Stephanie and protecting Stephanie. And I go back to, you know, he he did sound, you know, from the reports of the guys at the porno shop, like he was legitimately scared of somebody. And what if that somebody really was somebody he owed money to? The West Side Hitman. The West Side Hitman is real. Omar from The Wire. That, that was a little bit like the Omar from the Wire moment of the whole podcast. Um, so I think that the part three of the interview, it kind of does dig a lot into what the perceived consequences to Jay's life are now that Serial has come out. It's been a smash hit. And I think the thing that's important to note is that when you hear about what a smash hit Serial is, you're only hearing about people who downloaded it and listened to the first 12 weeks. But this podcast is an evergreen piece of content, and it's still number one on the iTunes charts, which means people are still discovering it, still listening to it. If you go onto the Reddit thread for Serial, you see new people popping up saying, what do you think happened? And it's like, you know, where were you three months ago when we were talking about this? But this For years. This will be for years. This will be popular for a long, long time. And, um, you know, that I think that is something to consider. That being said, the way that Jay sort of talks about, uh, characterizes the sort of the effects to his life, he talks about there being strangers around his house. He talks about it being scary. He talks about not one big thing, but like hundreds of little things that had kind of happened. Um, we know there are crazy people out there who maybe like were taking pictures of his house and I don't know what they were doing, but we, we know that, that that's that's true. We also know that he seems really, really adamant about, you know, not leaving, not changing his name, sort of standing up to them. But I don't know. I mean, I I sort of get a strange sense of how much of this is real, how much of it is his perceived. I don't know. What do you guys think? Well, I mean, I think, you know, looking at sort of his reaction to the Sarah email and sort of the overreaction, you know, there's probably to some extent he, you know, might be a little bit paranoid. But, you know, like the famous quote says, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean they're not really out to get you. And, you know, it seems like there's really some crazy stuff going on in his in his neighborhood, because if you believe Jay's a bad dude, you know, there are way more bad dudes out on the Internet. And it's not just the guys who are going into the Best Buy looking for the payphone. You know, there are people who like they're vigilantes. Yeah, I would be afraid. What about you, Laura? Yeah, I definitely think it's it gives a sense of how rabid people have become about this story and about their feelings about Adnan. And uh, I, I did hear an interesting interview on the way up here today where Sarah was being interviewed by Terry Gross and they were talking about, you know, did you set out to portray 
Jay as sort of like the villain or the guilty party, and, and she didn't. But I think, you know, by him not talking during the podcast, that sort of did turn him into the scapegoat. And I would be a little bit nervous if some of these people are out there doing this and um, we'll see. And an even more mysterious figure. If he had participated, I don't know if that doesn't mean people would still be no. driving around his cul-de-sac, no. but I think it did sort of you know contribute to the fact that people want to know who Jay is. What's the deal with Jay? Right. Yeah. Right. Toby, so when you hear Jay sort of uh, being scared about things happening in his life right now as a result of the podcast, do you you know do you blame Sarah Koenig for that as he does, or or do you think this is just part of the consequence of being involved in a crime? I, I guess I wouldn't blame Sarah, although I understand why he would. You know, there, there are there are sometimes people I think kind of get carried away, and there was an article, you know, a couple of weeks ago about a woman who was harassing online uh, those that British couple whose daughter got lost in Portugal, who's never turned up. And, uh, you know, I can't remember, she, she might have committed suicide or was in prison or something, but she had spent all this time online, you know, accusing them of killing her and, and, and all this crazy stuff. And I think if Jay's getting, you know, some of that, like, I don't, it, it doesn't surprise me that, that he would become paranoid, especially for kids. You know, when you, when you have kids and people know what your address is, I, I think that that's, that's got to be scary. Okay, so let, let's move to some of the meat of what he said, because um, there was a portion of the third part of the interview that dealt with the Stephanie question. And um, I think my question here is why Natasha asked this question and then didn't ask the next question. So I'm going to tell you what she asked him and just summarize what he said, and then I would love your reaction to it. Uh, Natasha asks Jay, there's a theory circulating on enthusiastic web forums like Reddit that you felt threatened by Adnan's relationship to your then-girlfriend Stephanie, and that's why you have some type of vengeance plot against Adnan. Jay laughs, I dated Stephanie from junior high until about junior year of college. I loved her a lot, but if there was any risk of infidelity, it was going to come from me. I know they made a big deal on the podcast about her and Adnan both getting crowned homecoming court, but I was like, yeah, baby, go get your crown. I knew who that crown was coming home to, so no, I was at no point threatened by Adnan. But I can tell you about the time that Adnan threatened me about Stephanie. So... Laura, what would have been your next question? <laughs> Were you stepping out on Stephanie? It it, it never comes Jen. up. Well, it never. <laughs> well, it never. He does. He's kind of hints yeah. there that he is an unfaithful guy. And to me, that was the theory that I sort of advanced yeah. saw advanced a whole lot was that Hay knew that he was cheating on on Stephanie, but she didn't ask the question. Or if she asked it, we don't get to see it. Well, I feel like honestly, back to these questions. I, I my sense is sort of that. Um, these questions were approved ahead of time. These were the questions she was allowed to ask, and there was no deviation from the pre-approved plot line. And I think, you know, I'm just, this is detective hat, and so it's maybe a crime writer, but I'm not a detective, so I'm just going to speculate. And, you know, what I think would have made a very satisfying narrative, if you're writing the book, is that, that Jay has some motive to be the killer. And if Hay knows something about Jay's love life, and Jay is intimating here that he wasn't faithful, there may have been somebody else, who knows, that Hay may have known this. The one bit of evidence that suggests that to me has always been the fact that Hay was strangled. Even in this case where 
you know, Adnan says a week ahead of time, I'm going to kill her or I'm going to do something. You know, if you're planning to kill somebody, you know, if you're planning on what you're doing with your car and your cell phone and you're not planning on how you're going to do it, you're not going to bring a knife or a rope or a candlestick or a wrench and you just all of a sudden grab her by the throat. I mean, that just implies that it was not premeditated, that it was a, you know, a spur of the moment thing that whoever did it, I don't want you to say what you're saying to me and I'm going to strangle you. And so that could be Adnan. It also could be Jay. And that could be the motive. And I'm just saying that's my detective hat. And it's it's total speculation. One, one of the things that really struck me, given that Jay had this opportunity to sort of reframe it and say what he wanted, is that he didn't say what I would have said, which is, if I was framing him, I would have had to know for sure where he was that day that he wouldn't be able to refute my story. He doesn't say anything along those lines. I kind of think that was an opportunity that he may have missed. I don't know. I, I obviously have ambivalent feelings. It sort of leads to the big question is, does this interview change the way you feel about the case? Does it sway you from whatever strong feeling you had about Adnan's guilt or innocence or Jay's guilt or innocence before? Toby, I would love to hear from you on this as you've been playing devil's advocate this whole time. I'd love to know what your thoughts are. Well, if I was on the Innocence Project and trying to put forth that, that serial killer, I wouldn't be feeling so good about it. But, you know, I, I guess it didn't really change a whole lot to me. I mean, it, it, it seems to me that you know, it's it's a lot of details, but I think as as the prosecutor or one of the detectives might have said, the spine of his story basically stays the same. So it, you know, it, it seems to me that they were both must have been involved, and and maybe not too differently from the way he says. Uh, I was talking to a friend the other day about it, and we were kind of going through these sort of convoluted scenarios that that would explain different things. And eventually, you know, if you use Occam's razor and say maybe this the simplest explanation is is the most likely you know it it seems that it fits to some variation on on the story that that Jay's been telling all along that being said you know if i was on a jury i, I wouldn't be able to convict him at non I, I don't think there's enough evidence there but the story to me still seems you know fairly plausible if if not all the details being exactly correct I'll tell you the thing that struck out to me, and then I'll let you guys, uh, Kevin and Laura, have the last word on how you feel about the case. It did occur to me reading this interview that the story Jay is going to tell to this interviewer is the one that he told to his wife. Because, you know, at some point he told her what happened, and this is the narrative she knows, and they live together now, and she's going to read this. And, um, you know, whatever late that iteration was, this is the one he sort of has to stick with now. So... You know, it was the reforming of the story based on sort of, you know, the new relationships in his life. So I don't know how I feel about whether or not that makes him more innocent or more guilty or how I feel about Adnan. But it doesn't help, although the inconsistencies always hurt. So, um, Kevin, so how do you feel? What's changed for I, you? Well, I think anything? your point is very good because we've seen this in books that we've done, especially about, you know, crimes where somebody, you know, admits some form of culpability. The, the more times they tell it. The, um, the, the more bad, convoluted the story Well, the, the nicer they come off. That's they, right. they, they, the, the, the sharp edges get rounded off. Now he off. didn't even help bury the body. Now he didn't even help bury the yeah. body, and you're right. And, and after this amount of time, it, you know, if you've said bits of this to different people, sometimes it's hard to keep what that narrative is. But well, you're, know, you're able to try it on. Right. How does it sound if I say, 
I didn't help bury the body. How does it? And you're able to try it with different people throughout the years, and then you reach a version of the story that fits best on you. And you may even believe it yourself. You may. So your question about what is this? Uh, how do you know? Do you feel differently about the case? I think that people listening, you, we talk about confirmation bias. I think people on both sides will see something here. The fact that he he says that he was doing this and saying certain things to protect his grandmother is a very good explanation for why he was not forthcoming in the beginning and why his story changes. The details, however, about where Hayes' car was and Jay's car was and the fact that, you know, that that Adnan just couldn't possibly have moved both cars himself. He couldn't have moved. It wasn't like it's around the block. He couldn't have moved the car to another part of town and walked back and it, you know, it just that just doesn't make sense. So you're still looking at the evidence as you sort of know it timeline wise. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And as a writer, if I'm writing this, I don't know what to do with Jay's interview. Right. You know, as I'm writing my narrative and I'm saying, I, I, you know, what do you believe? What do you put in? What do you say? This is what happened here. This is what happened. This is what this one says. I don't know what to make of this interview. What do you think, Laura? Uh, it, for me, it hasn't really changed how I look at the case. We have a little serial support group in my town, and we got together our Friday morning of uh, some of the local historical society ladies <laughs> and my friend, the upmarket intuitive, to discuss this. And it was interesting. Some of them felt like, like I said, this was the best possible explanation from Jay. It made everybody feel like, oh, this is why he was lying or maybe not telling the whole truth. But there were some people that start to say, maybe Adnan is guilty. Um, because why would Jay go to such elaborate lengths to continue with this story? What's in it for Jay? Um, so it definitely, not for me, but for some other people, did create some doubt. Well, we have the possibility, I think, of creating more doubt, more speculation as developments in this case happen. We know there's potentially an upcoming appeal, some some briefs being filed. I hope you guys will all join me to talk about them. Laura Bricker, thank you so much for coming in today. Thank you for having me. And Toby Ball, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. And Kevin, thank you so much for joining me today. Anytime, Rebecca. You can find links to more about all of the crime writers, including a brand new page on our website featuring links to all of our books at crimewriterson.com. You can also join the conversation there with your comments. You can also hear all the episodes we've recorded at my email address. If you want to send me a note, you can find that too. And yes, of course, our donate button. Please consider chipping in a few bucks so we can keep putting the show together and, of course, produce a second season of weekly podcasts when Serial Season 2 comes out. Thank you so much for listening and for the great reviews you've left on iTunes. Keep them coming. And if you've subscribed, stay subscribed. You never know when we might drop a new episode into the feed. I'm Rebecca Lavoie. This is Crime Writers on Serial. Thank you so much for listening. Want the same expert advice you get from the pros in the store while shopping online at DiscountTire.com? Meet Treadwell, your personal online tire guide that matches you with the perfect tire for your vehicle. Get your best match in one minute or less with Treadwell by Discount Tire.